Hello, my name is John Lovering, and I am the host of Audio Theatre, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci, and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am, and uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he said. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thank you. And here we go. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. Welcome to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our on-air listeners and in-studio audience and to come and be a part of this local, independent community radio station, which we're all so grateful to have here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. I, who am Amy Antonucci, am turning it on over the mic here to Pat Spaulding, RMC, who will introduce each storyteller to you tonight as they come up.
Andy Davis, who lives with his wife and daughter at the foot of Mount Chikora in the White Mountains. He's a fellow storyteller whom I have had the pleasure of knowing for quite some time. Andy's an animated teller who shares stories with warmth, humor, and verve. I like that word, verve. Andy draws his material from life here in New Hampshire and from the folklore of the wider world. He's entertained audiences as far away as Paris, Bamako, and San Diego. We're lucky to have Andy here tonight to tell us his true tale, Salvador 89. Thanks, Pat. My story is about falling deeper into connectedness with the world. One April afternoon in 1989, I was standing on a dusty roadside south of Acapulco with sweat in my eyes, my pack on my back, and my thumb out, trying to get to El Salvador, where a friend was working for a labor union at a time when that particular line of work was getting more and more dangerous. Finally, a vehicle pulled over, a lime green pickup with a cap on the back and surfboards on the roof. And inside driving it were Gabe and Steve, two guys about my age from Carpinteria, California. They were following the Pacific coast, hitting all the surfing hot spots from Baja to Costa Rica. As we drove south under the big washed out Mexican sky, we talked and talked and got to know each other pretty well in a short time, the way you sometimes do when you travel. They told me about the mystique of surfing, how it had drawn them in and their passion for it. And I ranted about the U.S. role in the world, how our government was pouring a million dollars a day into a country the size of Massachusetts to kill nuns and peasants. Steve, who was only a little bit older than I was, if at all, adopted the slightly jaded, world-weary tone of an older brother who told me that um, well, when I uttered one more trope about how we're all connected, he started shaking his head and saying, man, when I'm on my board paddling out to sea, that's when I feel connected. Don't waste your time with politics, Andy. Nothing ever changes. Well, we were together for about four days. They stopped to surf at Puerto Escondido, and I checked out the hippie beach at Zipolite. And then they picked me up, and we continued on to the Guatemalan border at Tapachula, and then on to Guatemala City to get our Salvadoran passports. And then late at night, long after dark, we arrived at the expatriate surfer hangout of La Libertad within an hour of San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador, where I was bound. Picture this, a whole village of shaggy bronze surfers living in their version of paradise 
Well, every morning on roadsides around the country, people are discovering tortured bodies dumped by the death squads. Before heading out of town the next morning, I went to Punta Roca to watch Gabe and Steve surf. They had told me Punta Roca had the best right-hand point break this side of Hawaii. So I watched Gabe and Steve expertly balance on their boards, staying above the turmoil, and I had to admit the attraction. But I had a bus to catch to the capital. The office of Finastras, the National Federation of Salvadoran Workers, was in a former warehouse, a big cinder block building on a quiet side street. You entered through a big, black, heavy-gauge sheet metal door, and just inside there were two gas stoves. And in front of the gas stoves were two little round women in dresses and aprons who were constantly making pupusas for the workers who would come and go all day long to eat and talk politics. Off to the right, there were picnic tables where they would eat. The place was a hive of activity because on May Day, there was to be a big march and demonstration to challenge the regime. And since Finastris had the biggest headquarters of any of the movement organizations, there were people from women's groups and student groups and other labor unions who had their sheets spread out on the big floor and were spray painting in big red and black block letters acronyms and political slogans. Ni un paso atrás, not one step backward, or el pueblo unido jamás será vencido, the people united will never be defeated. Well, the march was a success. The banners were beautiful. We were a sea of people washing past the government troops, and no one got shot. A little while later, a few weeks, I returned to the States and I settled into a nice job baking at the Gap Mountain Bakery, where I could be with Anne, my juggler, baker, massage therapist girlfriend. <laughs> it's a good combination if you can find it. <laughs> Two or three nights a week, I would stay at Anne's place up on the shoulder of Mount Monadnock. And the rest of the time, I camped in the Mountain View Cemetery between previous generations of the Palmer and the Chandler family. Life was good, and the war in El Salvador seemed very far away. November 1st of that year, Anne and I bagged up the last of the bread and closed the bakery and then stopped in the grocery to pick up a couple of things before going up to her place. So while she went to the back cooler to pick up a gallon of milk, I scanned the headlines in the Boston Globe because the war in Salvador was heating up and I wanted to see if there was any news. A headline on page four, stop me cold. Twelve die in Salvadoran labor union bombing. 
With my heart in my throat, I read further. It was Finastris. The bomb had been planted and timed to go off a little after noon when it could do the most damage. It was planted in a burlap sack right outside that big sheet metal door, so when it exploded, it turned the whole door to shrapnel. The first to die were the women who made the pupusas. A couple months later, when I saw a friend of mine from there, his head was still held together by nylon mesh. He had been virtually scalped by a flying shard of metal, but he lived. The men on either side of him were decapitated. Back in the grocery store, as I dropped the newspaper to the floor and saw the look on my face and gathered me into her arms, and I tumbled headlong into the salty sea that connects us all. Thank you, Andy. That was breathtaking, literally. You can breathe for a few moments there. Kathy Wolf. Kathy is a writer from Kittery, Maine, who, when not writing essays and stories, spends much of her time controlling her garden jungles that harbor almost every type of New England invasive, short of kudzu. In her spare time, she often finds herself battling four-side neighbors who have become another type of New England invasive, <laughs> high-end condos and pricey marinas that are trying to take over the neighborhood. Fight it, Kathy. Fight the good fight. Kathy returns to True Tales Radio tonight to tell her story, How to Fall. My father taught me how to fall. It wasn't about learning from mistakes, failing with grace, etc. He was not big on moral lessons. I mean it literally. He taught me how to fall. He liked to tell the story of when he was earning money for college I was painting a barn two stories up when the ladder broke. I should have died. My dad would always pause here and take a deep pull on his cigarette. I landed on my rear instead of my head. <clears throat> I knew how to fall. <laughs> Not everybody does. When gravity and inertia conspire to hurt, uh, reactions vary. Closing your eyes and holding your breath is natural but ineffective. Sticking out an arm or two is slightly more proactive. It may save your skull, but break a limb. Tuck and roll is the right idea. But for my dad, the foundation of good falling was the perfect somersault. That's what he learned on the tumbling mats and diving board of the YMCA in Nevada, Missouri, where he grew up. And that's what he taught me. The tuck-your-chin-curve-your-back-never-let-your-head-hit-the-ground kind of somersault. The kind that rolls you back up to the balls of your feet, ready for whatever comes next. In the summer, we'd practice in the backyard after dinner, between sunset and dark, after the crickets got going but before the lightning bugs showed up. After I'd nailed the somersault, Dad showed me how to put it together with other tricks. 
He would lie on his back on the sweet-smelling grasses, bend his knees and extend his arms. I'd get a running start, put my hands on his knees, and he'd flip me over his head. If I overshot my landing, I'd fall into a somersault, sometimes two or more. Despite the broken ladder story, somersaults were not a safety lesson for me. I just enjoyed them. Doing a dozen fast rolls would leave me delightfully dizzy. And although I didn't know it then, they also gave me a sense of control over my body, a sense of where I was in space, maybe even a little sense of who I was. Then one snowy morning when I was 13, I fell off a six-foot retaining wall. we just moved to a new town on Long Island in New York, and my mother had arranged for a neighbor boy to walk me to the new school that was new to me. He was cute. He was popular. His name was Conrad. <laughs> he suffered my presence because his mother told him he had to. I was running out of the house to meet him. I never walked in those days. And I slipped over the wall. I tucked as I fell, and I landed on my shoulder in a bush. I was more mortified than hurt. It wasn't the last time that instinct would help. There was a car accident in college when I would have gone through the windshield if I'd not tucked my head. There was the time I tripped hiking down a mountain and only bruised my shoulder. So how to somersault was something that I taught my son before he was even out of his diapers. That and how to tuck his thumbs under the jungle gym bar before swinging and especially before turning upside down may be the two most important survival lessons I gave him. Well, of course, besides looking both ways. When Tyler was 11, my son, we moved from Portsmouth to Kittery. It was a tougher town 20 years ago. For instance... I noticed on more than one car in the middle school parking lot the bumper sticker, my kid beat up your honors kid. <laughs> but Tyler had coping skills. When approached by a bully, and at his first being a new kid in school, he was frequently, he would wait until the kid was almost in his face, and then he'd smile, drop to the ground, and quickly somersault away. <laughs> he may have earned a reputation for being a little odd, but he never had to fight. My dad would have been proud. I learned a lot from my dad. The power of simple declarative sentences, the power of detail. But I think I most appreciated somersaults. Maybe it's because I can still smell that damp summer evening grass of our backyard. I can still hear him encourage me, encouraging me to try just one more. Maybe it's because knowing how to somersault helped me trust that I could take care of myself. Whatever, if I was in charge of the children of the world today, I would make sure that they all know how to somersault. And right now, listen up, this is how. <laughs> One, squat on the balls of your feet with your hands bent backwards level with your ears. Two, tuck your chin, curve your spine, and lean forward, placing your hands on the ground but still keeping them more or less level with your ears. Three, Push up a little with your hands, enough so your tucked head will clear the ground. Four, maintaining the tuck and the curve of your back, lean forward, pushing off with your feet and bringing your hips higher than your shoulders and keeping your knees tight to your chest. Five, let the top of your back and shoulders meet the ground. F finally, Keep your back curved. I've watched a lot of people try a somersault, and they, in the middle of it, flatten out. 
and the head in your chest and your knees, uh, you want to keep your head on your chest and your knees pulled up until you're upright again. So keep your head in, tucked in your back curve. If you break the curve, you break the momentum, you end up flat on your back. And finally, trust it will all turn out okay. <laughs> Next up, we have Michael Lang. He's another True Tales radio alumni, alumnus. Michael grew up in Durham, where he studied outdoor education at UNH. For many years, he's worked both as a ropes course facilitator and a wilderness guide. Now he works through his small business, The Coyotes Inkwell, as a writer and storyteller. The story that he will share with us this evening is based on one of his rock climbing misadventures titled On Belay. Belay. That's French. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. That's all good. Belay. That's French. It roughly translates to to hold fast, to make secure. To climbers, it's a question that they ask their teammates before every climb. On belay, are you ready? The traditional response, belay on is often interpreted as, ready, rock on, let's do it, man! <laughs> a second exchange is usually uttered before any climb begins. Climbing, climb away. I've said those words probably a thousand times or more, not just as a ropes course facilitator, but in my own misadventures as well. There was a time in my life when I was climbing at Patakaway State Park once, if not twice, every week. I learned every established route at the lower slabs. I knew every contour, every crack, every crevice. But being legally blind, I'm somewhat particular about my climbing partners. Aside of my classmates in my outdoor education courses, the only people I've ever climbed with are my brothers or my friends. And the friends who I have climbed with are some of my closest friends in the entire world. So it was only natural that one of these friends was with me as I attempted my first lead climb at the lower slabs of Patuckaway State Park. Now lead climbing is the stuff that Hollywood loves to put on the big screen. Dramatic falls, breathtaking moves. I did not intend for any of that to be in my first attempt. <laughs> this is the sort of climbing where the rope is anchored to the cliff face as the climber ascends. The belayer, the person who will keep the rope tight and let it out just enough as the climber proceeds upwards, that person remains on the ground, usually. As my teammate and I stood at the bottom of Pete's Tree, one of my favorite climbs at Patuckaway State Park, we stood beside the tree for which it's named. We double-checked each other's equipment. When I climb, everyone double-checks each other. Because even professionals, trained instructors, can make mistakes. And so I check myself. Then my teammate double-checks while I double-check my teammate. At last, it was time to begin. On belay? Belay on. I turned and looked up the cliff that would be my first climb. 
For some reason, those words sounded a little more sincere in my head this one time. Climbing. Climb away. The first 20 feet of that climb was a textbook demonstration of how a lead climb should go. Anchors were being placed every five feet or so. My teammate and I were both talking to each other the entire way through. The rope was kept just tight, but not tight enough to interfere with my ability to move. I had just reached the pinnacle that's halfway up the cliff face, this large ledge that comes to a narrow tip, and was standing there placing another one of my tricams. They're metallic pyramids, color-coded tethers attached to them. And when placed, the tether is rolled around it so that when weighted, when pulled upon, the device tries to turn and, in turning, wedges itself deeper into a crack in the rock. I had just placed one and was moving upward, moving upward quickly, for I knew Peachtree very well. I had climbed here so many times, I knew every crack and every move that had to be made to ascend it. And as I approached the second of the horizontal cracks that crisscrossed their way across the smooth granite, I found a place for my link cam. This device resembles the jaws of a a lobster's claw. When squeezed, it narrows down to a thin beak, but when released, it springs open once more, wedging itself against whatever it's been inserted into. I tested its placement again and again, then clipped it onto my rope with a carabiner, and began, once more, making my way along the vertical crack that ascends Pete's tree. This was about the point where my textbook demonstration of lead climbing came to an end. As I was crossing my way from right to left, I felt my boot hit something. It didn't feel like rock. I felt a gentle tug on the rope, and I heard the distinct sound of metal scraping against rock, then, a few feet below me, the sound of metal clinking against metal. I knew in an instant what had happened. But I asked the question anyways. Uh, hey, was, uh, was that the link cam that just fell? Yeah, yeah, it was. That one moment seemed to be an eternity. A terror-filled eternity. For right now, I was standing a good five feet above where I had placed that tricam. And there was nothing securing my rope between where I was and where that anchor was and... Even though the slabs are not quite vertical, I knew in the back of my head somewhere that if I were to fall at this moment, it would not be an actual fall. It would be a, a sliding, tumbling fall across rock. Very hard, sharp, jagged, rough granite. Hey, uh, if, if I were to fall right now, man, uh, I would... Would I hit that ledge below me? I was looking down, trying to remember just where was I standing when I had placed that cam, and where was I now in relation to that, and I knew the answer. There was another long pause before my teammate below answered the question that he probably knew I already knew the answer for. Yeah, yeah, you'll hit it. Okay. To this day, I'm still surprised by how calm that word sounded when I said it. Because in my head, I had already made the decision. I'm going to fall today. It's not going to be right now. 
And so I did the only thing that I could do. I held on to the rock. I looked up. Above me, about ten feet or so, there's a series of beautiful notches in the rock. It's almost like some primordial chef stabbed a fork into the granite while it was cooling and left this perfect row of holes that are just big enough for a hand to slip into. And I knew if I could reach there, the climb was done. I was on top of the world. But I had to get there first. Well, if Star Wars has taught me anything... <laughs> fear! The dark side, is it? Mm, yes! <laughs> and so I simply moved, without thinking. Left hand, left foot, sprang like a coiled viper, my right hand reaching out, the index and middle finger striking like two fangs deep into the rock and holding like iron. At that moment, my other hand was already reaching to my equipment belt to draw the one thing that I needed at this moment, the pink tricam. Now, I know there are climbers out there, some who may be listening tonight as I tell this tale, who refuse to use this piece of equipment because of its girly color. <laughs> but I am proud to say that on that particular day, I had a whole sorority of these little beauties hooked onto my belt. And it was exactly what I needed at that moment as I was dangling by two fingers. That little lovely curled over its tether and dropped right into the slot I needed it in in the rock. And it held with a strength that not even the mighty Thor could possess. And it held fast as I clipped it to my harness. Upwards I shot. With three more moves I had ascended the last ten feet of the climb. In a few moments I had constructed an anchor at the top. And it was now my teammates' turn to follow me up that cliff. On belay? Belay on, man. Climbing. Climb away. With every move that he made, I'd pull the rope up. And with every move the rope made, that little pink tether would flap a little bit. As though it were this banner of victory shouting out, I save the day! I save the day! <laughs> and when my teammate reached that piece of equipment... He pulled upon it to try and get it from the rock, and it refused to let go. It took him five minutes, shaking it this way and that, jiggling it about with a hook-shaped tool, before finally the pink tricam released its unbreakable grip. Afterwards, when the climb was done, and we were on our way back up the access road of Patuckaway State Park, making our way to where he had parked his sunflower yellow bug. We had time to reflect on our triumphs and our follies of the day. And, you know, man, you wouldn't have died, but you wouldn't have been happy about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. After all, lower slabs is not actually vertical. It would have been a sliding, tumbling fall. There would have been a lot of swearing, a lot of cuts and bruises and scrapes, but in the end, nothing worse than if I'd fallen off my bike at high speed. But it was a reminder to us both of why we double-check everything, why we triple-check everything, because sometimes life doesn't go according to plan or according to what's in the textbook. It also served as a reminder for just how much is in our hands when we're climbing together. On belay. I'm putting myself in your hands. Belay on. I gotcha. Nothing's gonna happen. On belay. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, 
a, a bevy of a little a sorority of, of pink beauties. <laughs> a sorority of pink beauties can help us all. Yep. Oh, yeah, Carol Clapp. Thanks. <laughs> Carol and her husband David live for half of the year in um, New Zealand, and for the other half, they spend it in their hometown of Epping, New Hampshire. Carol's the oldest of eight children who grow up on a dairy farm in Epping, back when cows were more plentiful than people. Over the years, residential development has put a heavy pressure on agricultural real estate and brought unwelcome changes to the lifestyle that Carol knew. She wrote a memoir about that and about her 50s childhood titled Till the Cows Come Home. Tonight, she'll regale us with her story, Falling Down and Coming Up Short on the Farm. Carol. Thank you, Pat, and I'll try to regale you, but uh, following uh, Michael is quite a challenge. <laughs> um, so, ring around the rosy, pockets full of posies. When it comes to falling down, a family farm is a good place to do it. Well, maybe not. I'm not sure it's ever good to fall down, you know, like flat on your face or what have you. But a dairy farm provides plenty of opportunity to fall, plenty of handy places for accidents, often with scenic backdrops, and suited to their stay-at-home nature, farmers often fall right where they thought they were safest, on the farm, among family and friends who are obliged to pick them up. Indeed, in the United States, agriculture ranks within the top 10 most dangerous occupations behind aircraft pilots and refuse and recyclable material collectors. As a kid growing up on a dairy farm in Epping, I did my part to support these statistics. <laughs> I fell from the backs of cows and horses, even fell off a pig once. I've fallen out the rear of hay trucks amid 50-pound bales abruptly strewn across the middle of fields and roads. I've fallen from hay bales stacked 20 feet high in the barn. Up, up, and up the hay crew piled them until a side collapsed and down we came, a jumble of kids landing in, on, and around bales of hay. It wasn't so bad. Once I fell off Frank Bean's Buick sedan when it was sitting in our driveway, parked. I broke my arm. Surely I shouldn't have climbed up onto its roof, but maybe Mr. Bean shouldn't have polished it so enticingly, making it slippery and irresistible to this six-year-old. As kids, my younger sisters and I slipped into the manure gutter. So often we called ourselves the gutter girls. My most graceful fall into it happened when, while watching blood pulse where horn buds had been scooped from my calves' heads, I fainted and slumped full length into the gutter. I nearly fell from an overturning John Deere tractor once when my brother Matthew and I were working the 60-acre cornfield that drapes the crest of Red Oak Hill. 
He was ahead of me on another tractor pulling a plow while I dragged a harrow. The front end of my tractor dropped into an extreme woodchuck hole simultaneous to the right large tire bouncing onto a boulder, tossing the old tractor into suspended animation. <laughs> In an instant, I yanked it out of gear and rigidly clenched the wheel, braced on my left leg, screaming, Matthew! Gas leaked from the filler cap of the throbbing, half-rolled machine. Matthew! I yelled, locking my eyes onto the back of his head and shoulders as they faded from sight over the hill. Matthew! As he disappeared over the horizon, I thought I was a goner. It would be at least 20 minutes before he'd return to see me again. But he was gone. Matthew was gone. I froze with panic, helpless. I like to think my brother telepathically heard my cry because, miraculously, he reappeared, running back, flailing his arms and falling several times in the furrows during his sprint to save me. I'm not sure how he managed, but he spread his arms to make a mighty grab and pulled down the right wheel of the tractor to level the big machine. I had to laugh when he declared, there, now we're even. <laughs> Referring to the time when, as a baby, he fell into the manure pit and I saved him from drowning. <laughs> Some of you may remember that story from last month. On the recreational end of agriculture, I've executed countless embarrassing falls while skating on the pond in front of our house, as well as impressive tumbles from sleds toboggans, and other contrivances that we slid across pastured hills and down the mile-long stretch of dirt road over the hill. During winter, blood was shed all along the town road. High school neighbor boys Alden Crocker and Lee Allen invented a rattle-trap vehicle they called the Traverse and used four of us younger kids as crash test dummies. The Traverse was a primitive dog sledish rig with a plank stretched, perched above two sets of short skis, front and back. Alden straightened the front skis, aimed us downhill, then hopped out of the way while Lee stood on the back like Sergeant Preston of the Yukon and mushed us down the road. The sled went very fast and always speed wobbled to careen up over the snowbank, flinging the dummies, us, in all directions. We cried and bled. I doubt the Traverse ever made a successful run. We shouldn't have slid in the road, of course. There were many things we shouldn't have done as our seventh generation worked and played together on Apple. Hearst Farm. When we entered public school, the eight of us spaced across all 12 grades, we began learning about a world beyond the farm and started wondering how we could survive. We got the sinking feeling that we were falling down on a much larger scale 
As farmers, we were managing to fall behind financially and technologically, unable to compete within a dairy industry awash in surplus milk from large-scale producers beyond New England. Our pride in being a big farming family with what we thought was a large herd of 100 milkers on 2,000 acres became laughable when compared with agribusiness out west. That's what we called the land of our competitors out west, though it was probably just upper New York State. During the summer of 1963, our mother took six of us on a quest to see for ourselves what was happening past Vermont. She pushed me through three exams to get my driver's license and told Dad he had to stay home to milk the cows. She bought a new car and loaded her brood. We set off to visit friends out west and continued on to Yellowstone Park. Our friends showed us big farms around Osage, Iowa. It was hard to get our heads around what we saw. The ground was so flat, no hills or trees, no rocks or woodchuck holes to avoid. Everything was laid out in expansive squares so unlike our up-and-down fields with trees and brush encroaching from every direction. In Iowa, farmers grew their own livestock feed, no need to truck it in or the fertilizer the way we had to. The locally manufactured John Deere equipment was huge, as were the dairy herds all artificially bred Holsteins in covered feedlot, feedlots milked twice a day in rotary parlors that handled 60 cows at a time. It seemed to us that Iowa farm kids had no chance to fall off a cow, let alone their thousands of industrial abused pigs. The girls we met said they were not allowed near the tractors or livestock. They just went to school, cooked, and did housework. We found no gutter girls in Iowa. Our eyes were opened. Back in Epping, faced with outside, outsized competition and depressed market prices paid for milk, we found little honor in running antique equipment and always being listed in the town re report as delinquents. Our credit, credit rating was ruined by back taxes. The carefree days of our youth were over. We had fallen into debt over our heads and couldn't get out. The situation felt desperate, and indeed it was. It was no fun falling behind. In the end, in 1987, the Harvey's 150-head herd was slaughtered through a federal milk surplus reduction plan, sort of like putting a dog down to save it from further misery. It was called the Whole Herd Termination Program. 
1987, our farm ceased to function as a spunky, enduring family business. That year, the Department of Agriculture shut down 14,000 dairy farms across the United States. Applehurst Farm, along with 58 others in New Hampshire, came up short. Ashes, ashes, we all fell down. Thanks, Carol. Next up, we have Deb Berry. She is the founder of the nonprofit Awareness Unlimited, based in Stratham, New Hampshire, which provides programming for a wide variety of social justice and cultural issues. A longtime lover of stories and theater since a very early age, Deb has written, acted, delved into television and filmmaking, and has been a high school English teacher for 20-plus years. She loves tales about falling in love and has one of her own to share with us tonight. Now listen to Deb describe why there's no timeline for falling in love. <laughs> Thank you. I fall in love frequently. To varying degrees, for varying amounts of time. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I do love stories about falling in love, and I do love to fall in love. I frequently fall in love with places. The Garden of the Gods out in Colorado, for example. Things like lilacs blooming in springtime. Foods. Anyone who knows me will know the prime example is chocolate. <laughs> Ideas. Like being the change you wish to see in the world. People. My newly birthed children are a prime example. That was many years ago. And other living creatures. I find it easy to fall in love. I have fallen in love with many other living creatures. I grew up on a farm, which seems to be a, a, a real theme here tonight. We had dogs, rabbits, I had ponies and horses, and throughout my life, there have been many, many special, wonderful cats who have been a part of my life. I am indeed a cat lady. One of my favorite falling in love stories is about two of these sweet kitties, my daughter and me. Long before I had my children, I began adopting cats. One of the first was a beautiful little light gray cat by the name of Guinevere. I had just directed a production of Camelot, so it was only natural that her name be Guinevere. And of course, her name actually became Jenny because that's what Arthur called Jenny, Guinevere in Camelot. She had a companion by the name of Merlin, who, <laughs> who was adopted along with her at the same time. Jenny was a sweet, very light gray cat, short-haired cat, who had marvelous and beautiful striking white markings, especially on her face. 
I have a friend who used to refer to her as the cat who wore makeup because she had white just perfectly lining her eyes and, and her lips were lined all white and, and it looked like she had spent an enormous amount of time putting makeup on every day. Believe me, that was not the kind of cat that Jenny was, however. She was quite the timid young girl when I fir- she first came into my life. She liked to play with her pal Merlin, but she wasn't particularly fond of other people. She was a cat that I had been attracted to. She was a kitten. She was about 10 weeks old when uh, we adopted her. But she wasn't overly friendly. She wasn't real cuddly. Um, I guess some people would say she was a typical cat because cats aren't known for being especially affectionate. And, and liking to be a little bit standoffish. Well, this was out in Colorado. And about the time she turned three or four, we, we moved back here to New Hampshire to settle in. So Jenny took the very long car ride with me from Colorado Springs to central New Hampshire. And we settled in. And before too long, started having kids. Now, my son is my older child, and Merlin was the one who actually became very attached to my son, Matthew. When I needed to take a shower, it was when Matthew was napping, of course. I would put him in the center of my big queen-size bed. The bathroom was just adjacent to the bedroom. And I put pillows next to him. This is before he could start to move himself around. And I would always get out of the shower and find that Merlin was laying right next to him, protecting him and guarding him. So they had kind of a special relationship. My daughter came along two and a half years later, quite different from my son. My son's a very laid-back, mellow, easygoing guy, even right from birth, right from birth. My daughter, on the other hand, is very much a go-getter, and she was right from birth. The really wonderful love story, part of this falling in love love story, is the connection that was generated between my daughter, Erica, and Jenny, this very timid, very petite, lovely cat. They fell in love with each other absolutely fell in love with each other right from the from the time Erica came first came home Jenny would spend time looking at her checking her out laying beside her and as soon as Erica could she got her arms around her totally out of character Jenny just melted into those little girl's arms very very connected They had a lot of fun during Erica's growing up years. Jenny was turning close to eight, nine, ten years old as Erica became three, four, five years old and dressed Jenny in her American doll's clothes. Mm -hmm. Now, because Erica had an American doll, I don't remember the name, the colonial one, this is all in colonial dresses, bonnets even, 
Okay, I have some amazing, wonderful, beautiful pictures of Erica and Jenny, and Jenny's all decked out in her American Girl clothing um, because Erica has her all dressed up. And she would just pick up Jenny under her front paw, front uh, legs and drag her around. She wasn't a big cat, but for little Erica, she was, she was quite a bit. So Erica um, solved that problem by putting Jenny in one of her doll baby carriages and pushed her around in the baby carriage. It was a really remarkable connection that the two of them had. And as they both continued to grow older, that connection did nothing but grow stronger. And they grew more and more in love with each other. Jenny managed to live until she was almost 20. Almost 20. <laughs> I can't help but believe that the love from my daughter certainly was a contributing factor to that. But when Jenny passed on one September evening, Erica and I were cuddled up in my bed with Jenny wrapped in a blanket. And we had both vowed that we would be there with her until she had passed. It was one of the most devastating experiences of my daughter's life at the young age of 14. Now, I had had Jenny longer than I had my children. So I was also very heartbroken to have her leave um, our home and family. Fortunately, it was a nice natural process. So we, ha we had always continued to have other cats with us during this 20-year this period that had come and gone and come and gone and so forth. After Jenny passed, a friend of mine who um, was involved with cat rescue at the time said, do you want another cat? And I was like, no, no, you know, we've got cats. It's not an empty house. Jenny was so special. I don't know that we can, you know, obviously we can't replace her, but when we'll invite another cat into our, our family, I don't know. And this was in 2004. In November, I got a call from my friend. Well, this vet called, and there's a cat that was left off at the vet's office to be put down. But he's not very old, and it's just because the owner's got, he has ear infection problems, and the owners got tired of taking care of him, and so they want the vet to put him down. She said, I haven't, I haven't met this cat, but they tell me that he's a very affectionate cat. And that was one thing we were missing in, in our home, was the affection that Jenny had given to all of us. So I talked it over with Erica, and we said, well, you know, we can go check this out. We'll see. Um, yeah, you all know how this story ends. But it, it's how we got to the end of this story that, that is another love, falling in love story that, I st that stays with me so much. We went to the vet's office on a Friday afternoon. I taught school. Eric and I left from school, drove an hour to the vet's office, went in. The vet's going, oh, he's, he's wonderful. He's, you know, he want really wants to find this cat a home. The, the vet assistant walks in with this large, very large cat, tiger, 
in her arms, put him down on the examination table. I was standing right beside the table. And as the vet continues to tell us more about the health conditions, this I look down, the cat is looking straight up at me, and then stood up, put one paw on this shoulder, put the second paw on this shoulder, draped himself around my neck, <laughs> and Eric and I looked at each other. <coughs> and said, he's going home with us today. <laughs> now, I mentioned it was 2004. He's a big cat. World Series, Red Sox, 2004. Our big poppy rode home with us that day in the car and was a wonderful, wonderful addition. That is an example of falling in love very quickly in our lives. I was once told by someone, a man that I was dating, that I fell in love with him too quickly. I don't think there's any timeline for falling in love. Our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the seacoast, and Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups and True Tales Radio, and who wants to know, hey, what's your story? If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio, local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci, and our MC is Pat Spaulding.